welcome to the Casey City Church Audio Podcast. We pray you enjoy this following sermon. I want to share this morning on Revelation chapter 2 and I'm starting a series on the seven churches. Today we're going to look at what we call the loveless church. Now I wish I could have, I wish I coined that term but it's, it's not me actually. If you look at the NKJV, it gives you the title of that, of that passage, the loveless church. And so what does that imply? What does that mean? As we look at the seven churches, you will realize that the Lord commends all the churches and there is one but, but. And, the, and that's, that's the aspect that we need to look at because I feel that this is such a time that we are in right now to begin to look at these seven churches because what the Lord is speaking through the seven churches applies to all of us and to all the churches. There is some aspect, some element of the seven churches that we need to begin to embrace and learn and realize. Hallelujah. Because the key aspect of this is that he will remove the lampstand. What is that then? What does that mean? Right? So we want to look, we want to look as as much as we can on it today. You know, most of you know, we we just moved into our, our new place and you know, the joys of unpacking certain things that have been packed away for a year and a half, maybe even two right, is this, that you get to discover some treasures. Now, sometimes you get to discover some stuff that you think, why did I even pack this, <laughs> right? In life, it's like that, isn't it? In our journey, we, why am I carrying this luggage with me, this baggage with me? I should have got this over two years ago, but it's still there, still haunting you and still facing you. But I want to talk about the treasure that I've discovered, right, or that I am discovering because there's still more boxes to unpack. Now, we've not had a chance to sit and to revel at home as yet. Why? Because every day we're opening boxes. Every day we're either cleaning up or doing something like that. You know, and uh, it's, just, it's just been, it feels like as if uh, it's this never-ending goodness. <laughs> because it's, boxes seem to pop up, I don't know from where. They just seem, suddenly they appear, hey, I thought that was clear. Oh, oops, now... The walkway is still filled with boxes. They still seem to be coming up. I don't know whether you've experienced that as you moved, but that's been, that's, that I'm sure I see, I see many of you, you know, facing the same thing. So we've not been able to revel. Why? Because in reveling, to revel requires this, for us to stop from work, for us to stop doing what we normally do and begin to sit and enjoy what he's already provided. That's what it requires at times. So how do you do that? So through the day, we've got to stop. We've got to take, you know, we've gone out of the house in the evenings and we've sat down in this mud. You know, thankfully, it's been dry for a bit and we sit down there and we've been having our dinner and looking around all the trees and the birds and stuff like that and just enjoying that 20 minutes or that 15 minutes or that half an hour and then running back in and then doing more, doing more of that. But we've got to be intentional in that, right? We've got to be intentional. Uh, media, I don't know whether you are able to bring up the revel, reveal, and the intimacy aspect. If you can, just, it's, it's no hurry. No, that's not the picture I had. But if you can get the picture that I had, that's really vital. That's, that's very important. That's a, that's a bit of a, of a joke, actually, which I quite like that. So if we can have that picture, that would be good. 
Amen. So in, in, in Reveling, when you've got the picture, just let me know. In, in Reveling, we need to stop and we need to absolutely really enjoy. So our theme, just to put it out, our theme is Revel, Reveal. And in all of that is the context of intimacy. And if there's something that I've realized over this period and over this time, it's the intimacy in Christ. It's rediscovering our intimacy in Christ that is vital for us. Because our dependency is in knowing who he is during a time where there are too many questions lurking around that is trying to attack. And you find that, these, that this church, the church of Ephesus, if I could put it in a nutshell, were boundary keepers. Right? They were strict in particular boundaries that they had set to not compromise. And, and we just want to show you this, if, if we could have a look at out and inquire and hence... in this book, Knowing God. Man, it is a book that you and I, if we've never read it, we've got to read it, and we've got to read it again and again and again. And he says this, there are two unhappy trends in the church. Christian minds have been conformed to, so the first, Christian minds have been conformed to the modern spirit, which is this, it is okay to go through religious motions, but set God off at a distance. So we discuss things from a religious mindset. We discuss theology. We discuss uh, orthodoxy, the, the doctrines. We discuss all of that. But to keep God at a distance, right? To, begive, to, to begin to think, to begin to give all of this academia and all of this mindset, a bigness to begin to think, wow, this is all so vital and so important, but to believe in a small God, to believe in a God that is so small. And the second unhappy trend that he talks about, now this is a book that, that, that was written a long time ago. He says this, Christian minds have been confused by modern skepticism. That God is not sovereign or holy. The historical accuracy of the Bible is to be questioned, etc. So people consistently begin to question. Now, the church of Ephesus, the Ephesian church, the Ephesus the church, they were boundary keepers. They knew if there were fake apostles, people who called themselves apostles, they knew. They called out truth for what it was. Spurgeon fought against what he called the downgrade of the weakened Christian view of his day on the matters of Scripture, the atonement of Christ and human destiny. What difference does it make if we believe in these things? 
What difference does it make to you and I if we believe in these things? Is it making a difference in your life? Is it making a difference in my life? Right? You know, the, the church in, uh, the church in uh, Ephesus in Revelations chapter 2, if you can turn with me, let's look at the NLT. Revelations chapter 2. The loveless church. Sorry, let me read the NKJV. Let me read this from the New King James Version. To the angel of the church of Ephesus writes, These things says, He who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of seven golden lampstands, I know your works, your labor, your patience, that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have, and have patience and have labored for my name's sake and have not become weary. Isn't that good? That they have endured, they have persevered, they have gone through. I mean, let's look around. Haven't we persevered? You know, aren't we boundary keepers in a sense? But it says this, nevertheless, I have this against you. Those are very strong words. It's like an indictment against that church. That you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. But this you have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And so the Lord sandwiches. This is a sandwich message. He says, he, 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 he says that this is what you're doing, which is amazing. But this is an issue that you need to contend with. And then he says, he comes and he encourages them again. Now he who has an ear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So let me give you just a little bit of background about the church in Ephesus and see whether it relates to us, whether we feel we can relate to this church in any way. It was a wealthy and prosperous spirit. Uh, when there wasn't any work there, they, they were given JobKeeper. And job seeker. And there were many grants that came from the federal government and the state government. They had small businesses were thriving because despite not having anything, they were wealthy. So they could do all of that, right? The f and they were famous for its extravagant temple goddess, Diana, to the Romans, Artemis, to the Greek, right? A place of many gods and temple prostitution. Temple provided employment for many silversmiths who would, who would, make, and, who would make and sell shrines, trink, trinkets and idols, particularly to tourists that would come through. So they would walk right through this walkway. And as they're going, as they're walking through, there will be like a bazaar on either side. You know, it was wonderful that we had an opportunity to visit these seven sites 
you know, on one of our uh, trips in, in, I think it was Bible archaeology that we were doing, yeah, both my wife and I. So we were able to see some of these sites. And it's, it's just, you, you, it's amazing to go there, but you, you can't, it's difficult to picture the hustle and bustle that was going on. But as you see, you could understand where they would have positioned all of their, all of their night markets and day, daytime markets, you know, that, that sort of a thing. Right. It was a center for trade for many years in Asia Minor. It was well connected to all the cities in Asia Minor and it was well, through well-maintained roads. So it was like a crossroad. It would come from different roads would come because this was a thriving city. Everyone wanted to go to Ephesus. It was like they wanted to go to Times Square in New York. You know, that was a thriving place, the Big Apple. They all wanted to visit. They all wanted to visit that. Right? Its harbor could accommodate the largest of ships. But today when you go, you can't see the port as such because it, due to silt, it, it, it has become much of an inland. Right? There was life and energy and a place to exchange of ideas and politics. Had the largest library in the ancient world with, a hun- with hundreds of thousands of volumes. It was a city where Paul arrived with a population of about 225,000. 225,000. The city of Casey, I think, is about there, or maybe more. But imagine that, coming to a city like this, and he comes, and then this is what begins to happen. There was this comfortable equilibrium of everyone living together, a rule as such that they somehow would work things out with one another, the educated, the non-educated, the poor and the rich, they would work with one another. So there was this equilibrium that was there. But Paul comes into this environment and, and guess what? He breaks this equilibrium by preaching the gospel of Christ and pointing out that they were worshiping idols. So can you imagine the silversmith? That's their trade. That's where they're making money. So they were getting wealthy through all of this, Right? The, the, the priests and those who were apprentices in the temple, they were making money as well through prostitution. So all of that was happening in an environment like this. Look at it in today's context. People making money through selling different things, through reading your palm, through, you know, this kind of praying, you know, this, I don't know what you call it, I think Reiki or stuff like that, and doing so many of these things and making money out of that. Paul comes and he says this. The craftsmen were angry and the riot broke out as the equilibrium that they were used to was shaken as people became believers and were not keen in worshiping idols. So you can read about that in Acts chapter 16. Now, as that, as that continued, in today's age, if we look at that, as, as these things are apparent in our midst, with what is going out out there, it is creating a shaking within the church. Do we believe in this? Do we accept conversion therapy? Do we sign this bill? Do we oppose this bill? Do we go out there and do we do this and that? What do we do? There is such a divide within the context of the church. And God comes to speak to us through these seven churches in today's day and age. Right? Because... As much as we are to be boundary keepers, 
we realize here there is something more to keeping the boundaries, to being so good within our orthodoxy, to be so knowledgeable within our doctrines, to know. You know, do you know what you really believe is really real? Do you know what you really believe is really real? If our focus is only that, then we don't really believe. Then we don't, sorry, then what we believe is not really real. Because knowing God is something more than keeping just the tenets of our faith. Knowing God is more than just knowing about him and knowing the context of the doctrines that we believe. Now, this is not a message to downplay truth. This is not a message to put aside doctrine. This is not a message at all that if, I'm deliver if you feel I'm delivering that, then I, I, want to, I want to eradicate that mindset. It is not that. It is about that, but much more. It is about that that needs to become this, this, this flesh and blood. It is about that, that that needs to translate into a lifestyle of discovering, of knowing him in such a way that when others begin to see, they are so, they're so excited. You know, J.I. Packer in his book brings up two, in, two elements. He talks about what is called a traveler and a balconier. Someone on the balcony just observing as travelers walk. And what do you hear? You hear about what they are discovering and what they are encountering. Both possibly understanding some elements of that in a journey. But it is only the traveler that has to really begin to understand what it means when it comes to the wind that comes in this direction or your GPS that takes you somewhere else or is actually taking you there. It is only the traveler that, where else the balcony is an observer. So some of us are travelers and some of us are balconiers. Who are you? Do you just know the knowledge? Or like the traveler, have you now put that to the test where when you walk and as you walk, you encounter and you discover. You revel and he reveals. Or as he reveals, you revel. So which comes first? I was asked this question. I feel like naming the person who asked me this question. But I will cease from being tempted this morning. Hallelujah. <laughs> oh, I love this brother anyway. Oops, you know who it is now. You know it is a brother. But, you know, as I was asked that question, I began to think even more. It is not... Well, this, it's the, my response was the chicken and the egg. Which comes first? The chicken or the egg? The chicken. <laughs> the chicken. But without the egg, the chicken wouldn't be there. So when God, what did God do? Did God just lay the egg there? I mean, not God laid the egg, but. <laughs> I mean, God placed the egg there. <laughs> and then created the chicken to sit on the egg so that. Uh, ah, well, I leave that to you. Hallelujah. Praise God. 
So now the, the Ephesians were more focused on that. Right? They put the egg there and then the chicken rests on it. You know, in, in a sense, there was, this, there was this sense, right? So the commendation here, there are seven noble aspects that he talks about. Let me go through those seven, those, those seven elements. I know your deeds, right? He starts off. You can find this in verses 2, 3, and 6. And he starts off with this, I know your deeds. Their faith was practical. They were obedient to God, being charitable to others. They did not just profess faith. They practiced faith. I know your labor. They zealously and anxiously served the Lord with all of their might. They seized every opportunity to serve the Lord, and they did it willingly. So this is an amazing church, folks. You know, I, I want to harp on this a little bit more today because I want to harp on the fact that there's so much that we can see ourselves in. As a church, we can see ourselves in these commendations. But we also need to see ourselves in the nevertheless, in the but. We need to see ourselves there because that is vital and it is important. Again, particularly in this day and age. I know your patience. They did not go grow weary in well-doing. There are many that serve, but do so for a time frame and do not persevere. Before long, they fall by the wayside. These folks persevered in the face of opposition, great trials, in a pagan and a society steeped with superstitious believers or with superstitious and religious believers. They threw all their energy into the cause of Christ. They were loyal to him. I know you cannot tolerate wicked people. They loved the truth. That was the fourth commendation. They loved the truth and loathed for what was doctrinally and morally wrong. They were, as what I said earlier, what you might call boundary keepers. Maybe a bit right. Maybe there was righteous indignation here. The fifth element is this, the fifth commendation. I know you have tested those who claim to be apostles, but are not. So there are not very many that you could possibly say, that you could possibly say this about themselves, which is they knew truth from error. Do you really believe what you really believe is really real? That's a tagline of the truth project. When they heard another gospel being preached, be it an overemphasis that brings legalism or an overemphasis that brings a permissive lifestyle. There is an aspect called generous orthodoxy. And I might share a little bit about that if time permits. And it, it is, it, it's this permissive lifestyle, lifestyle. It's like, it's, it's this message of grace that lacks truth. All grace and no truth. Because if you look at scripture, it says grace and truth. And I always say this as the wings of a dove. You need to have grace and you need to have truth. Too much truth is legalism. Too much grace is, again, permissiveness, right? So it is applying both of this. The sixth commendation was this. I know you have endured hardship. 
the Lord had commended them for their rare faithfulness. They did not deny him or quit being in the Lord and in the church. They realized that the coming together of the saints was significant and important. I know, and, and we live in a day and age right now where because of the access of online service, there is a sense that, okay, I'll, I'll stay home and in the comfort of my home, in my PJs, I'll worship the Lord. Now, is that wrong? Is that right? I can't answer that for you. You have to answer that. And that's what I mean by coming into a place of intimacy. Because in this place of intimacy, intimacy is relationship. In this place of relationship, you will hear the goodness of God that does not want to shame you and I. That does never want to make you feel guilty. But where is he leading you into? Where will he lead you to? I will follow. Your goodness follows after me. You know, as we were singing that song, I'm, I, I was, I was, the picture I got was a prodigal son. The father runs to the son. And that was the goodness of the father running after the son, not allowing the son for a minute to come up with his idea of what it means to be restored or to be reconciled. The son had an idea of what it, what it would take for me to be restored and reconciled. The father had something way bigger than that. That was much larger. And that's what he has for you and I. Not your idea, not mine. But he's got something way bigger, way so much larger that only you and I can figure that out and experience that in this place of intimacy. In this place where he peels off layer upon layer. Last year was all about that. Peeling off layers and layers and layers. It's called the reset. Bringing the church to a place of figuring and configuring. And so where are we? And the, the last commendation was this. I know you hate the Nicolaitans. So what is this? They were a sect that in some ways rejected moral law. Their contention was that since God's elect are saved by grace and are free from the law, nothing is evil. So you know what they think? They feel that, oh, we're all good. That's it. No evil. We are just good. So whatever they desire is essentially good. So they made every excuse for lewdness and licentiousness because that was good. Immorality, wasteful living, because that was good. John Gill said it this way. They committed fornication, adultery, and uncleanness and had their wives in common. And that was good to them. And the Ephesians, the church at Ephesus, they hated them. All this was practiced and promoted as a form of Christian liberty. So they, the Ephesians, abhorred any form of ungodliness that was being promoted under the guise of grace, right? But 
nevertheless comes. In their zeal for moral purity, they have lost the centrality of love. 1 Corinthians 13 starts off by saying, though you speak in tongues of men and of angels, but if you do not have love, you're a sounding gong. Paul in no way says you should not speak in tongues. He says, if you speak in tongues and of men and of angels, and if you do not have love, does not dismiss speaking in tongues, but he says there's something way bigger than that, which is this context of love. And you will find that this sense of, and I'll leave you with this today, and the good news is, this is a part one, part two message, hallelujah. Praise God. So you don't need to sit here for another half an hour to listen to the rest of it. But I want to leave you with this thought. And I hope I've whet your appetite enough for you to come back next week. You would realize that the context of first love is this. There is an even keel, an even balance between loving God and loving one another. So his indictment to the church of Ephesus was this. Have you left your first love? Have you left loving one another? Because when you love one another, it is going to be so appealing to the world that they will want that. When they see you, they will want it. But you can never love someone if you don't experience the love of the Father. That his goodness is running after you. When you experience, when you and I experience that the love to someone else must be then delivered in that way. Kef shared that with us two Sundays ago so well that he put to us Matthew 18, the context of offense. You know, as, as a pastor, one of the hardest things is this, to work and to deal with offense. Sometimes some pastors say this, I'd love to be a pastor if I don't, if I don't have a congregation. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of a tongue-in-cheek. Amongst us, we kind of joke like that. <laughs> doesn't mean that they hate the congregation or this or that, but we all know. And some of you may turn around and say, man, I'd love to go to church if I just... Don't, don't have a pastor as well. <laughs> you know, so it goes both ways. It's never one way, right? Offense is not just one direction. It's two, right? And, and I think that's an important aspect. But how we deal with it is important. How do we go? How do we deal with that individual? Do we maintain and do we carry? It's like me kind of unpacking these boxes and suddenly think, oh, my goodness me, two years, I've still got that thing there. Two years of unpacking, I've still got this offense there. You know, what are we going to do? And so you and I, we feel really, really guilty. So friends, I want to leave you with this question. The question that you and I need to ask ourselves, and next week we will look at Philippians chapter 3, a pivotal verse for our year. And I want to couch that in this message of knowing God. Oh, I want to know you more, deep within my, 
actually that's a song. Oh, I want to know you more in the power of your death and resurrection, Paul says that in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, that I may be made conformable, that I may know your power and know your resurrection, that I may know that so that I may be made like you. So which means if you know his resurrection, you know his death. To be conformed to that, to come to a place where I am willing. And like it or not, that's where society is leading. That's where this world is leading to. For you and I to be able to make a stand. To be able to make a stand with the basis of knowing that I can still I will, not I can, I will still love him and I will still love the offenders. And I will still love these clowns who come up with all of these decisions that don't make sense to the word of God. But it makes sense to them. That's why they do that. But if they knew the truth, they would not. So how do we then love them into the truth? How do we bring them? And it is the question is this, that this letter in Revelation chapter 2, it is about us having to wrestle with this. Is there a connection between this church's hypersensitivity to moral purity and its first, and its loss of its first love? Is there a connection there? That's what we want to explore next week. Now, there's a song that my brother is going to sing, and I want us to just, I believe we've got the words for that, for that song. Hey, do we have before that, do you have the picture that I emailed you? Can that be up? No. That's not the picture. That's the word. What's this? Oh, sorry. I'm looking there. Thank you. Now, look at this. Haven't we been signing petitions? And this petition requests changing the term sinner to persons who is morally challenged. <laughs> Isn't that what's happening today? In today's day and age. No, you're not a sinner. You can't call them a sinner. You know, I was writing the report for the AGM, and when I came across the word manpower, I just stopped. I was thinking, oh, my, I can't use manpower. So I changed it to human resource. And I'm thinking, what in the world am I starting to do now? So you're, you're so fearful of certain terminologies, right? I think in, in the American system... Uh, Oh, gosh, there was something funny that just happened recently in a vote. <laughs> I thought it was the word imagine that. <laughs> imagine there's no heaven. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, imagine that if there's no heaven. What a, what a terrible disaster. But anyway, I can't remember that, but it's shocking. It's absolutely shocking that that really, really um, happened. But in, in, in that thing that you just saw, it's virtually that, that there is such a change in a redefinition of things that we need to stand firm and understand what we believe and why we believe that, and yet still have the sense of knowing the love of God and how we love one another.